If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to be opening to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Uh, I must confess, I always get just a tad choked up when we sing that song, just as I am. I was 16 years old. I was driving to church that Sunday night. You have to look it up in your history books, but we used to go to church on Sunday nights. I was driving to church on Sunday night, and uh, I, I told the Lord, anybody ever made a deal with the Lord? I told the Lord, and just a, a prayer, a quick prayer, I said, okay, I'm dealing with some stuff. I'm 16, trying to figure some stuff out. And so I said, okay, tonight, if the song leader leads just as I am for the invitation, I'm coming for it. Now the challenge, the problem was I was running sound that night. And so I was in the back running sound, uh, 16 year olds, it's, you know, you're never too young to, to run sound. Don't let anybody look down on you because you're young, but run sound, scripture says something like that. And so I was running sound in the back, preacher quit preaching and all of a sudden the song leader gets up. What do you think he's saying? Just as I am. And I was like, oh Lord. I'm running this sound. I said, Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> I came down the aisle and came forward and church surrounded me and, and, and prayed for me. What I didn't realize was that our song leader led that song for the invitation every other week. Uh, I did, just as I am, every other week. And so my deal wasn't all that good with the Lord. Um, I want to ask you a question, and that is, have you ever had an experience where you thought to yourself, there's no way. There's just, there's just no way. <laughs> I was reading with some interest a story uh, that took place Thursday night. Uh, you may have seen the story from the New York Rangers hockey game after the game. Team captain Jacob Truba gives 18-year-old Isaiah Marquez Green the jersey off his back. And he signs it for him. Uh, but he's not done by just giving him the jersey. Uh, you see, Isaiah was a survivor of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting back in 2012. And he wasn't 18 back then, he was seven years old. And his six-year-old sister uh, was actually a victim of that school shooting. And so Jacob Truba gives him the signed jersey, but he also presented Isaiah with a scholarship from the Garden of Dreams, a completely paid for scholarship for Isaiah to pursue his dream of law school. And so he'll go to UConn and be able to pursue uh, his dream. But if you go back and you watch the footage, uh, Isaiah says those words after he's given the scholarship. There's no way, no way, <laughs> like no way this is happening right now. And as I, as I just listen to that heartwarming story and, and you know, you get all the feels when, when something like that happens and, and you, you trust it's, it's, it's not for show, you know, and you just, you just think, wow, what a, there's no way. And Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, he's going to answer the no way question by showing us just how bad the bad news is. And we understand just how bad the bad news is only uh, one response remains, and that is when we hear the good news, no way. So in 500 BC, uh, Socrates said, it may be that deity can forgive sins, but I do not see how. 
And how is it possible for a holy God to forgive sin? Anyone who doesn't think that that's a problem really hasn't thought it through. But yet 500 years before Jesus came on the scene, Socrates is thinking this thing through. And it's a profound question 500 years before Jesus. It may be that deity can forgive sin, but I, I, don't, I don't see how. And to his credit, uh, he, is, he is thinking about this question, and he recognizes the paradox that that represents. Because the more righteous God is, the more difficult that that problem is and becomes. And so 500 years later, here's Paul, the author of Romans, uh, recognized as, as one of the most profound thinkers on the planet. And now, equipped with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is pinning what is, is one of the most profound letters that the church has ever, has ever seen. And so, he, he's, ex, he's experiencing, you know, this, this answering this question of the no way, and, and, and even Peter says in his book, Paul writes at such a level that it's, it's, it's hard for me to, to understand. And so, Paul was trained in the, in the best schools. He, he was trained in, in the best Greek education that you could find. He was trained in the best Hebrew education that you could find. And he was a Roman citizen, which is going to come into play later on in his life. But he was trained by the great Gamaliel. You will remember Gamaliel in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 5, uh, we read this story where Peter and the apostles, they're, they're teaching and they're, they're performing these signs and wonders, and they come before the Sanhedrin. And what does the Sanhedrin want to do? They, they want to put Peter and the apostles to death. And who is it that steps up? Gamaliel. This, this great teacher of, of Saul become Paul. Gamaliel steps up, and what does he say? He says, be careful, <laughs> whoa, be careful. Leave these men alone, for if their purpose or their activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. So this is who Paul was taught by. This is who is, who's received this great education from. And so, this rich Hebrew background, in addition to this Greek education, in addition to being a Roman citizen, and Paul is writing to these people in Rome. Now, we don't always uh, take time to, to do some background work, but it's, it's been a few weeks since we've been in, in the text, the deep dive of this text. Last week we looked at the seven resurrection truths that we, that we see throughout the, the book of Romans, and I, I hope that you caught that theme, and I hope that that theme carries us throughout the, the entirety of this series. Uh, and I want to be encouraging you to, to be in the text, to, to be in Romans. Because uh, we're going to be here camped out for, for several months. I believe it's going to be a blessing and a, a game changer for our church. But I, I want you to be in Romans yourself. And I would encourage you uh, to, to be reading the letter at least once a month. And it, it's about an hour to, to, to listen to it or, or to sit down and read it. It takes about an hour. I mean, that's, that's like almost three TV shows now. But I believe you can do it. And I believe you'll be blessed by following along with us in this way and letting the Word of God speak to you as you study His Word. And so what we see is Paul begins laying down this foundation in chapter 1. 
He's laying down this, this foundation for the most comprehensive look at doctrine that we will find in Scripture. And these first three chapters really deal with the most challenging part of that doctrine, sin. And you noticed if you were here a few weeks ago as we were traveling through Romans 1 that it was, it was some hard, hard stuff that we were walking through. Chapter 1, he describes this, this great uh, leveling of humanity, this idea of divine impartiality and human accountability. And we, ha- we have to see, you'll see uh, on the screen, just the, this, this is a, a larger part of a section. We've tried to say this throughout this whole series that you know, we can't just hone in on, on one particular verse or one particular section, that we have to keep it in context. We have to, to see where, where Paul is going. And so, Romans 1, 18 through about chapter 3, verse 20, this is, this is, one, this is one, one section in thought that Paul is trying to drive at and, and bring home. He doesn't single out one particular sin in chapter 1. I, I confess to you that I had, I had taught it that way. I had, I had spoken of it that way when I was younger, and, and I believe I was wrong. Not, not that I was wrong about sin, but that, that I was wrong about the context in which Paul was talking about. That, that, that's not the point, to single out one particular sin. And if you've heard it taught that way, I would argue that it's, it's a significant misinterpretation of Romans 1. Because Paul's point, which he's driving toward in Romans 3, is that all have sinned. And Paul has masterfully outlined the human predicament in chapter 1, but we have to keep in context the forefront of what we discuss. And this is part of a bigger section. So let's pick up where we left off in Romans 2. You, therefore, and we have to ask why it's therefore, you know, because he's, what it's therefore, because he's, he's going back. This is what I just talked about in chapter 1. Therefore, you have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you contempt, show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness, verse 5, and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are seeking, self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Verse 12, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on on their hearts, their consciousness are bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, 
as my gospel declares. Paul says a mouthful. I mean, he uses the, the word law so many times. I mean, you think you're in a courtroom. I mean, he, he, is, he is literally just <laughs> pounding out this, 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 these points. And Paul's establishing these fundamental principles here. One, these fundamental principles about God. Two, these, a fundamental principle about human condition, the human condition. And then three, he's talking about these fundamental principles about salvation. And we can't miss any of those because we're all equally guilty in God's eyes and God's judgment is righteous. And Paul is dealing with the moralist here in this first part of the chapter. And I want you to catch this. He's, he's dealing with the, the moralist. And in verses 3 and 4, we see this, this set of rhetorical questions that, that Paul is asking. So when you pass judgment and do the same thing, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Do you not realize God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? That God's patience does not indicate God's apathy towards sin. That no, nowhere in Scripture do we, do we read about God's apathy towards sin. Rather, God's kindness and His patience in verse 4 is what? It's this call, it's this invitation to repentance, to turn from our sin. Then Paul's going to go on and quote Psalm 62, where uh, Livy read from just a few moments ago in Psalm 62. So that when we stand before the Creator God on the last day for His judgment and verdict, what's the general test by which we will be judged? Paul's answer is surprising here. And it can be a bit confusing, so let's talk about it. It's not that we'll be judged on whether or not we have received Christ's righteousness. Instead, Paul says, God will give to each person according to what he has done. So we say, let's hit pause and ask Paul, wait a minute. Wait just a minute. Because uh, if, if is, is you saying that judgment is based on the basis of works, has Paul changed his mind from Romans chapter 1 to where he is now in Romans chapter 2, where he said that right standing with God in, in Romans 1 is given by him, received by us through faith, and never earned. Is Paul teaching that we now must add works to our faith? I appreciate how author Tim Keller responds to this. Keller says, first, let us give Paul some credit for intelligence. Only 20 verses previously, he did say that we are saved apart from the law or anything that we can do. So we should start from the assumption that Paul is not accidentally contradicting himself 20 verses later. So there's that. Secondly, in verse 6, Paul is quoting from where? Paul is quoting from... Psalm 62. We just said that. God will give to each person according to what he has done. So the question becomes, what have the people done in Psalm 62? That's a good question. What we see is, is David, the writer, if you go back, uh, Livy just read two verses in Psalm 62, the last two. But there's actually 12 verses in the whole psalm. And so if you go back to Psalm 62, 
David the writer, he's, he's really contrasting these two groups of people. There are those who, who plot against God's chosen king. You'll see that in verses 3 and 4. And they're plotting against God's chosen king. They lie. They say one thing with their lips, and they do the opposite thing with their hearts. That's in verse 4. And they are like the people that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 2. But then the other group that Paul is, is referring to in Psalm 62 is this group that finds rest in God alone, that they know, Psalm 62:1, what? They know that their salvation comes from Him. Then down in verse 7, they are those who say, my salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. So what have they done according to Psalm 62? What they have done is to find salvation from God and make Him the center of their lives. My rock and my salvation, He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. So it is this attitude that Psalm 62:12 says, surely God will reward as He gives to each person according to what He has done. Do you see that? So in Romans 2, Paul is asking the moralists to consider what they've done, or rather, what they've not done. They have not repented in verse 5, seeking refuge from God's deserved wrath by what they, they have done, their, their keeping of the law, rather than God's undeserved mercy by what He has done. They are seeking honor in themselves. Here's my question for us this morning. Does your honor depend on yourself? I don't know if I should go here, but I'm going to go here. Um, we see this uh, played out on the Little League baseball field. Now, some of you are going to say, <laughs> preacher, I, I, was, I was okay with you when you were just expositing the text. When you were staying in your lane, when you were staying in Romans chapter 2, I was okay with you then, because you're just, you're just telling what, what the text says and telling what it meant to those people in that time, in that day, and I'm good with that. But when you start trying to go to hermeneutical application in my day, that may be a little bit more of a tougher pill to swallow. So how does this play out on the Little League baseball field? Coaches and parents trying to depend on themselves for their honor. I don't know if I'm stepping on anybody's toes here. Now, I believe that our children 
need discipline and correction. But I'm not talking to the children. I'm talking to the coaches and the parents and the grandparents. (laughs) And I've seen it played out multiple times this week. People trying to depend on themselves for their own honor. People acting like a fool trying to depend on themselves for their own honor. And here's the challenge that we see. The problem is the context here in the chapter, yes, was different back in the first century, but the reality still remains today. It's the condition of the human heart. It's when we try to depend on ourselves for our own honor. It goes south really quickly. And a lot of times when I preach, I'm talking to myself, and more commonly, I'm talking to my former self, because I've been there. I've seen this played out, people depending on themselves for their own honor. So does your honor depend on yourselves when you have to be right, when you have to get your word, when you have to, does your honor depend on yourself or does your salvation and honor depend on God? That's the question. And we have a propensity as human beings to diagnose ourselves. That there's no doubt that the moralist Paul is talking to would have heard Paul's description of sin back in chapter 1 and thought, I agree with you, Paul. Yes, you tell those dirty Gentiles how bad they are. You tell, I agree with you, Paul. But as for us, I think I look pretty good in the mirror. Matter of fact, I know that I'm better than them. And Paul says, not only will those things be judged, but God will even judge people's secrets. Wait a minute. Paul addresses God's impartiality toward the moralist, and now he turns his attention to yet another predicament in verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, If you know His will and approve what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it's written, God's name is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. And if you break the law, you have become as though you have not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. Verse 28, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is the one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people but from God. 
I mean, we, we could spend so much time on this chapter of what Paul is, is going back and, and doing. And at the beginning of the chapter, Paul says, watch out, because when you point your finger at others, it's very possible for that finger to point back at you. And then in Paul, verse 17, Paul really turns his attention to, to the Jew. Paul is, is talking to his former self, so don't, don't miss this. Paul's not just railing on, on Jewish people. He, he's talking to his former self. This is who Paul used to be. It's easy to read this passage and think that Paul is calling them out for thinking that they're an exception to the rule because of who they are. But you see this much more subtle point coming out in Paul's language. Look at it. You're convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Paul says... You don't just think that you're an exception to the problem. You think that you're the solution to the problem. Did you catch that? He's not just calling them out for, for that. You think you're an exception to all this because of, of who you are, but, but you're not just an exception. You, you think you're the, the actual solution to this. You think that God has called Israel to be the means of rescuing the world from its mess. Michael Gorman, uh, author, says it this way, judgmentalism and hypocrisy are two sins of presumption, the fruit of pride that render people incapable of rightly perceiving others, themselves, or God. Paul's calling this out. I was reminded of even a, a more recent example as I, I read a letter that was written years ago right here in our backyard. I read a, a letter that was written by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. from the Birmingham jail. And, and King is, he's calling out preachers that are, are wrapped in my skin color. He's calling, he's calling out preachers for, for their hypocrisy. And if you haven't gone back and, and read, it's about six pages long. If you haven't gone back and read that letter, I mean, it's, it's a convicting read. As long as you think that you are an exception to God's judgment, you will never repent and turn to Jesus because why would you need to? Paul is calling this out. He's, he's, he's asking the reader to consider Something very, very serious. I'll close with this, that in, in Luke chapter 15, uh, Jesus tells this story that many of us are, are familiar with. He, he tells this story of the prodigal son. Uh, and, and one brother is uh, completely religious. Um, he's, he's religious with a ch the cherry on top. <laughs> But, but this younger brother is anything but religious. And so this, this younger brother goes out, squanders everything that his father had given him. And here's what the word says, Luke 15. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. 
The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Nobody, nobody had ever painted a portrait of God like this. This portrait that that Jesus is painting. But yet the older brother who had done his duty would have nothing of it. Why am I telling you this story? Romans 1 and 2 sets before us the same two people that Jesus does. The bad news in Romans 1 is that in your sin, you are lost, younger brother. The bad news in in Romans chapter 2 is that you think God owes you because you're better, older brother. And what Jesus says in that parable is that the older brother is lost too. And so, in verses 28 and 29 of Romans 2, Paul's ready to give this all-important explanation that God is actually redefining what it means to be a member of his family. And this theme is going to carry throughout chapters 3 and 4 of Romans, chapters 5 through 8, 9 to 11 and then even receive application in 12 through 16. Paul is showing that religious people need the gospel as much as unreligious people, and that religious people run from the gospel as much as unreligious people. At the heart of the gospel, as Paul said in chapter 1, is that God's righteousness has been revealed so that it can be received. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound saved a wretch like me. And that is the good news that we are traveling toward. Will you pray with me? So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have gifted us with such a means to, to learn about your nature and your character. Father, we thank you for the fundamental truths that Paul lays out in this letter. Not easy, but true. We thank you that in your grace that you have redefined what it means to be a part of your family, the family of God. We're thankful that that we we cannot achieve that status but rather it's something that we receive through the blood of Jesus that Chance talked about earlier during our time of communion. So, Father, I I pray today that we will receive this news with glad hearts, that we will see that that this can only be validated and authenticated through the risen Lord that we serve, the one who has defeated death. Father, as we continue in our hearts of worship today, may we, may we turn our attention to you that we may find our salvation and our honor, not in ourselves, but that we may find it in you and that we may center our lives 
in you. We thank you for this good news. In Jesus' good name, amen.